a prayer before study. Ineffable creator, who from the treasures of your wisdom have established three hierarchies of angels, have arrayed them in marvelous order above the fiery heavens, and have marshaled the regions of the universe with such artful skill. You are proclaimed the true font of light and wisdom, and the primal origin raised high beyond all things. Pour forth a ray of your brightness into the darkened places of my mind. Disperse from my soul the twofold darkness into which I was born, sin and ignorance. You make eloquent the tongues of infants. Refine my speech and pour forth upon my lips the goodness of your blessing. Grant to me keenness of mind, capacity to remember, skill in learning, subtlety to interpret, and eloquence in speech. May you guide the beginning of my work, direct its progress, and bring it to completion. You who are true God and true man, who live and reign, world without end. Welcome to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, former sixth grade track champion, no longer very fast medievalist scholar. We're in the midst of a Lent series called The Many Faces of Jesus, and today we're considering Jesus, the good medieval Christian. I must warn you, today I'm really embracing the self-reflective penitential nature of Lent. This episode is more about what we do to Jesus than about Jesus's character and love for us. It's necessary to be aware of the gap between the two. But before we meet nice medieval Jesus, we must undergo a short history lesson. In 14th century England, something interesting began to happen. There was a huge upswell of interest in devotional texts. People began to read more. More texts were produced to aid individual devotion, like books of hours, which directed you in prayer at specific times of day, or contemplative works like those by Walter Hilton, Richard Rolla, and Julian of Norwich. You've met her before. Penitential texts, which helped you to prepare for confession through identifying your sins and cultivating contrition. And Lives of Christ a genre which helped people envision the life of Jesus by encouraging loving meditation on the events of the Gospels. Many of these genres had long existed in Latin versions, but to have them in English was a surprising new development. They and their ideas were accessible to literate people like never before. Alongside this wave of English devotional and contemplative writers, a new, radically reforming theology sprung up, initiated by John Wycliffe. At the time, Wycliffe and his followers were called Lollards. Wycliffe began as a powerful critic of the English church's corruption and wealth and as a proponent for translating the Bible itself into English. Eventually, many Lollards actively proclaimed that the wealth and property of the church should be stripped and given to the poor and the government. That transubstantiation, the belief that Christ's very blood and sinews were in the Eucharist, not bread or wine themselves, was not true. That the church's hierarchy should be abandoned. That lay people should have total access to scripture in their own language. That women could preach. 
and other questionable ideas. At first, many powerful lay people were drawn to this articulation of the church, some from authentic belief, others from the canny realization that they stood to profit from taking away the church's property. In the Middle Ages, the church owned nearly a third of England. Wycliffe had some influential protectors, like the son of the king, John of Gaunt. But by the early 15th century, the English church hierarchy went into a protective mode. Unlike continental Europe, England had not burned heretics at the stake or killed people for heterodox beliefs in general. But this changed in 1400, when Archbishop Arundel, the head of the English church as the Archbishop of Canterbury, and Henry IV, the reigning king, allowed heretics to be burnt at the stake for the first time in England. Ecclesiastical control also tightened over which books should be circulating and encouraging lay devotion. The devotion of people outside of clerical professions was, of course, good, but the church understood it as needing to be carefully monitored and controlled. Otherwise, it could erupt into heretical lollardy. So Arundel issued a set of proclamations, the Oxford Constitutions of 1407, and then the Lambeth Constitutions of 1409. These proclamations heavily regulated preaching, devotional writing, and especially the translation of scripture into English. Into this fascinating historical moment, came Nicholas Lev's book, The Mirror of the Blessed Life of Jesus Christ. Nicholas Lev was a Carthusian monk, and um, this book was approved by the English church hierarchy. Mirror retold scenes from scripture in English as food for so-called simple souls to meditate upon. In other words, it fulfilled the need for English access to the stories of Scripture, but the message was safely mediated by the authority of clerics of Nicholas Love. As Michael Sargent, Nicholas Love's editor today, tells us, it's easy to sort of float along with narratives of progress and believe that Love was a repressive and reactionary joy killer. But Love was actually trying to reform the church in response to crisis. In his own way. <laughs> Let's take a look at how he interprets scripture for the simple souls, especially women and the uneducated of the English 15th century church. So the scripture original is Matthew 4.11, which says, Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Nicholas Lev gives this to us as... After Satan was reproved as a false tempter and utterly driven away, holy angels in great multitude came to our Lord Jesus after his victory, and then spoke the angels, Our worthy Lord, you have long fasted, and it is now your time to eat. What should we obtain for you? And then he said, Go to my dear mother and get what matter of meat she has ready. Bring it to me, for there is no bodily food I like as much as her cooking." And two angels went forth and suddenly appeared before Mary and with great reverence greeted her on behalf of her son. 
And so the angels took the simple food she had planned for herself and Joseph with a loaf and a napkin and other necessities and a few small fishes. And the angels came back and spread the towel on the ground and laid the bread thereon and mildly stood and said grace with our Lord Jesus, awaiting his blessing. And he sat down. Now pay attention here, especially you that are solitary. Have in mind when you eat your food alone without fellowship, the manner of this food and how lowly our Lord Jesus sits down to his food on the bare ground. For there he had neither table nor cushion. Take heed how courteously and how soberly he takes his food, despite his hunger after his long fast. The angels served him as their Lord. One brings his bread, another his wine, another the fishes, and some sing as his entertainment a sweet song of heaven. And thus they comforted their Lord as belonged to their state as angels, with much joy mingled with compassion. This fellowship you have too, though you see it not, when you eat alone in your cell, if you are in charity, and especially when you give your heart to God as you ought to in the manner of the apostle, who says to us that when we eat or drink or do any other thing, we should do it all in the name of our Lord. And that's from the Mirror of the Blessed Life of Jesus Christ, edited by Michael G. Sargent, um, my translation. Well, that was certainly an elongation of the passage of Matthew. I'm rather fond of this section. It's, it feels a little quaint. You might gently smile at it. I like it because it feels authentically medieval. It connects us to a cultural moment of thinking about Jesus as a man with surpassingly excellent table manners, despite there being no table and no other guests. He's no gourmand. He prefers his mother's cooking. It ends with a comforting message that you too are accompanied by the angels when you eat or drink alone. I do really like that. Yet, even in these charming moments of envisioning the good son Jesus who loves his mother's food, we see a Jesus who is a good medieval Christian. He's domestic. He's a fan of the Virgin Mary's cooking above all else. He would fit right in, though, at any medieval court, the highest court in the land, with his dainty eating habits, despite having no table nor cushion. Such cultural moments can be much uglier. We can look at Mary in the Annunciation. The Annunciation, which, by the way, if you're listening to this on the day it comes out, is tomorrow, is the name for when Gabriel the angel comes to Mary to announce that she will bear Jesus. Nicholas Love draws some conclusions from Mary's initial silence when Gabriel comes to her. Here, then, you can take Mary as an example. First, to love solitary prayer and departing from humankind so that you may be worthy of the presence of angels. Furthermore, you may take from this to love to hear wisdom, keep silence, and love little speech, for that is a profitable virtue. Mary heard first the angels speak twice before she answered them. And therefore... It is an abominable thing and great reproof to a woman or a virgin to be a great jangler, an excessive talker. This example is particularly ironic, unintentionally ironic, 
given that the world-changing power of the Annunciation doesn't come from Mary's suitably feminine silence. Humankind's participation in redemption emanates from Mary's vocal consent. Let it be so. As a woman, to bearing the Messiah in her womb. But Nicholas Love cannot see past his cultural ideals of silent, assenting femininity. Or we could turn to the Last Supper. In Nicholas Love's portrayal of the night before Jesus' death, he focuses on the initiation of the sacrament of the Eucharist. He describes it with beauty and with passion and ends with conclusions for people to meditate upon. And as he details the kinds of things we should draw from this episode in Jesus' life, he turns specifically to the Lollards, who I mentioned earlier, the heterodox folks of his medieval English church. The true disciples, quote, left all their bodily reason and wit and rested only in true belief in their Lord's words as said before, save Judas, that was reproved for his falseness and unbelief, and therefore he received the blessed sacrament to his damnation. And so do all that be of his party now, the which falsely believe and say that the holy sacrament of the altar is still bread and wine as it was before the consecration, because it seems so to their bodily feeling. They are more reprovable than Judas, for they do not see Jesus' actual body next to the sacrament as he did. And therefore, it is easier for them to believe and more to their damnation. Page 151. The gloss on the side of this text makes the aims of this section clear. Contra Lollardos, against the Lollards. The Last Supper, the poignant beauty of a last shared meal, the introduction of the sacrament, the uneasy calm before the storm and darkness of the crucifixion has become watered down to transformed in, into a controlling device of dissidence. When he depicts the sacrament that unites the body of Christ, Nicholas Love, working with the full might of religious authority and the approval of the archbishop, weaponizes it. In these particular moments, the mirror of the blessed life of Jesus Christ reveals to us an inability to envision Jesus as anything other than a very good, actually the best, medieval Christian ever, and a common and devastating need to control and produce the right response to the Gospels. As usual, we can't feel superior as we read. We are all incapable of fully interpreting Jesus outside of our own time and space and bodies. We all want to impose our version of Jesus on the world with all our good intentions about it. Nicholas Love was a reformer of lax practices in the church. He was trying to make the church better and save it from what he saw as dangerous. We are all Nicholas Love. The real challenge is identifying when and where. We've all been guilty of fitting Jesus neatly into our culture and our concerns instead of heeding the true strangeness of his call. We domesticize him. We think of him like ourselves. He's a nice American Christian. 
or a nice English Christian or a nice European Christian, wherever you are. Depending on your own background, you probably think of him in your own terms. In my subconscious imagination of Jesus, which I am constantly trying to purge, he's like an open-minded Presbyterian or a slightly conservative Episcopalian, probably educated at a good school, though he avoids displays of that and of his wealth. Doesn't drink too much, but certainly enjoys a glass of wine. He definitely votes, even in his local elections. He has good table manners, just like Nicholas Love suggests. He's subtly attentive to and avoidant of offending others. He used to hold some distasteful Calvinist doctrines, but thankfully he's outgrown them. In other words, he's a lot like me. And the point is, it's not like I actually think these ideas or express them like Nicholas Love does. Yet, it's how I feel about Jesus when I'm not thinking. Maybe in your head you have more of a Baptist Jesus. He doesn't dance, let alone drink. Or a Roman Catholic Jesus. Drinks a lot, especially in college. Or a Unitarian Jesus. He's cool with smoking pot occasionally. Alongside our domesticization of Jesus, we adapt him to the needs of our agendas, just like Nicholas Love. The Jesus with excellent table manners is cut from the same cloth as the silent Mary of the Annunciation, the lesson to loudmouthed women. The Jesus with excellent table manners can lead to the Jesus whose Last Supper, instead of inviting even Judas to consume his body, condemns Lollards to be burnt at the stake. The zealots of the New Testament, waiting for Jesus to violently seize the throne and create a new state cleansed from Roman oppression, faced bewildered disappointment when he died an ignominious death. Jesus was fully supportive of slavery, and not just any slavery, but a slavery predicated on the pseudoscience of black people as inferior and thus fitting as slaves, according to antebellum slaveholders and religious leaders of the American South. And both Puritan English settlers of North America and Catholic Spanish explorers of South America shared a very firm conviction, despite their differing faith practices and their mutual hatred of one another, that Jesus was an ardent colonizer who supported their efforts to gain wealth and land by decimating indigenous people. Whatever institution is in power at that moment— And whatever counter-movement operates, left or right, medieval or modern, they find space for a convenient version of Jesus. What are we to do? If, as I mentioned above, we're incapable of seeing Jesus outside of our own bodies, times, and spaces, how are we to break the spell of our own persuasive voices and versions of Jesus? Moreover, interpretation and application of the Jesus of Scripture to our current times is both necessary and unavoidable. Despite years of um, reading the Bible, um, as I had been taught, where assuming it would all just be opened to me magically, we still have to do the work of interpretation. How does one live with love for God and neighbor in the world today? the world of the pandemic, 
of the internet of so many different things not explicitly addressed in the New Testament. Interpretation, sometimes creative and often difficult, needs to happen. We have to use these time-bound brains and bodies to enter into life with Jesus. With the aid of the Holy Spirit, we can. We must acknowledge to some extent we will always be unable to fully move beyond our own viewpoints. But what we can do is listen to the voice of the body of Christ, also working on interpreting scripture and living in the world in different times, places, and bodies than our own. We can pay attention where these voices of the past or voices with different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different genders than us, where they challenge us. I gave Nicholas Love short shrift today, but listening to even Nicholas Love can teach us a lot about both the mistakes of the church of the past and how much his church and he himself did really love Jesus too. The voices of the past tell us of our own littleness and our limitations as we think about ourselves, our histories, our obsessions, and our loves. Medieval Christians speak to us of the importance of self-examination, of contrition and confession. Self-examination may be especially called for if you find that Jesus agrees with you on everything. Jesus is a radical, but he's his own radical. He doesn't belong to anyone's platform. With God's grace, we can also consciously work to free ourselves from the need to control others through our versions of Jesus. So much of our adoption of different versions of Jesus can be traced back to our desire to get others back in line. Nicholas Love adapts his materials for Mirror out of the need in his time to control the Lollards or control otherwise unruly women. There's a fantastic recent interview, and I have the link on oldbookswithgrace.com if you want to go read the whole thing. I highly recommend it. In Plow Magazine with Stanley Hauerwas, the eminent theologian and Christian ethicist. The interviewer notes that many Christians are very concerned about the loss of Christian influence and power in today's society. Harawas responds, Well, I actually think that one of the good things that is happening today is precisely the loss as Christians of our status and power in the wider society. That loss makes us free. We as Christ's disciples ain't got nothing to lose anymore. That's a great advantage, because as people with nothing to lose, we might as well go ahead and live the way Jesus wants us to. We don't have to be in control or be tempted to use the means of control. We can once again, like the first Christians, be known as that people that don't bullshit the world. This week, for your Lenten practice, really embrace the penitential spirit of Lent. How have you fit Jesus into a neat cultural box of your own making? How have you used Jesus to control others in politics or in relationships? Identify these places in your mind and actions and confess them to someone you love and trust. If you have the time in your life, pick up some Christian writing or art from a different time than your own. 
the 19th century can be just as helpful and challenging as the 5th century, no need for chronological snobbery. How do the faithful and imperfect people of the past domesticize Jesus or make him into an instrument for their own purposes? How does their insight into Jesus challenge you? Thanks for listening.